All right, we can turn our Bibles again to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 and verse 11 all the way down to 19 today. Uh, today is just going to be an overfly sort of message, if you will, because this is it. We have made it to the climax of the book of Revelation. Uh, this is what the entire book is pointing towards is this event that is covered in these uh, short few verses. In fact, all of humanity, it could even be said, is leading to this event of the Lord coming again to this earth. And I, uh, the hymns that we sang this morning could not possibly have been any more relevant and absolutely perfect for this message. And that is completely by chance, if you will, uh, because uh, they all pointed kind of towards this coming again of Christ and the motivation that it should have in our lives. And if for whatever reason... We didn't have this going on. Uh, you could see the title of our message this morning is Heaven Opened, Rapture or Second Coming. The first, the, before we go into the details of this passage, we have to understand precisely what is being talked about in this passage because there is a, there's a lot of confusion out there in Christendom about what is uh, being portrayed in these particular verses. And uh, is this the second coming of Christ to the earth where he will establish his kingdom upon the earth as clearly is portrayed in the, the words literally understood here? We have Christ coming again, coming to the earth, and completely defeating his enemies. That is the only uh, conclusion that we could come to reading this literally. Uh, or is there an, an, an event in addition to Christ coming again being portrayed here? So is this a the rapture that's being talked about? Is the rapture included in this passage? Uh, the Lord catching us up to heaven and meeting him? and resurrecting us, is that included in this passage or is there something else entirely going on? And I wanted to go through this uh, so that we could understand precisely what's being talked about. And of course, this is the futuristic part of the book of Revelation. Uh, I show this every week so that it will be ingrained in our heads, this outline of the book of Revelation. If you take nothing else away from, well, there's a few other things you could take away. A main thing that you can take away from our, uh, at this point, 74-week study of the book of Revelation is how it's broken down, how we can outline this book. Chapter 1, the things which you have seen, a vision of Christ, the one who is delivering the message to us, the authority, his power, his majesty, that we can accept and trust what is being revealed to us here. Chapters 2 and 3, the things which are. Uh, 
literal letters written to literal churches, instructing them how to live because the Lord is coming again. That, that is uh, really what this is all about. Uh, how we should order our lives because Christ is coming again. Christ is going to be revealed. That's why the book has the title that it does. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. That is what this book is about. It becomes very evident in the closing verses of, of this passage with the beast, the false prophet, as Satan himself being bound, cast into the lake of fire, Satan going into the abyss. This book isn't about them. It's not about the Antichrist. It is about Jesus Christ, the one who is coming to establish life on this earth as it's meant to be. First, of course, we've seen that as is revealed in the Old Testament, there's going to come a time of intense tribulation that has never been seen on this earth. Uh, and, and it is going to be a worldwide uh, period of tribulation and trials for people that they have never experienced before, that the world has never experienced before. And the world has experienced some pretty awful things like uh, the Black Plague uh, it, killing two-thirds of Europe's population in the Middle Ages, uh, World War II, literal warfare across the entire globe, millions and millions of people dying as a result. All of those things pale in comparison to what we have seen taking place in the tribulation period, with half of the world's population being uh, dying as a result of these plagues. That hasn't happened other than in Noah's flood, and that's why the end times are compared to Noah's flood, because we have the flood that wiped out the entire earth, and we have the tribulation period that is preparing the way for Christ to come again. Those are the two uh, granddaddy catastrophic events, if you will. And everything in between is just sort of uh, warm-up time, if you will, for that. And, and we find ourselves at the very conclusion of this tribulation period uh, in these verses that we'll look at today. Last time, we saw that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There's so much more to... Uh, the message of Jesus than just today. What is going on in the world today and how we, ought to, how we can be saved and how we ought to act to one another? Well, there's a whole other part of the message and it is prophecy. It is the future. It is future events. Jesus was very concerned with future events. That's why uh, the book of Matthew has the Olivet Discourse in it. One of the major discourses of Christ is about future events because these future events need to be shaping the way we look at the world today. Just like our, our hymns alluded to, we need to understand that the Lord can help us in the battles that we face in life today, whether it's health problems uh, whether it is job problems or relationship problems, the Lord can certainly help in those areas because he's going to do this one day. 
he's going to come again and eradicate his enemies from this earth and establish life on this earth as it should be. And therefore, we can be fearless in our futurism. We can, we can fearlessly talk to our, our friends and our uh, acquaintances, our family perhaps, who scoffs at us because we read Revelation literally. Uh, you know what? Uh, <laughs> I guess when it comes right down to it, we'll find out when it happens. I'm going to go with what the, the word of the Lord says, and this cannot possibly be interpreted in any other way than Christ coming again to this earth and establishing his kingdom. We don't need to back away from that because that ought to be shaping who we are today. It's been a while since we saw this quote from Chester McCulley. Uh, he was the founder of Beth Haven Church in Kansas City, Missouri. He said, a Christian who does not understand what God has done in the past and does not have faith in what God will do in the future will be consumed by the crisis of the present. If that doesn't describe Christianity, at least in America, I don't know about the rest of the world, I'm just from here, but if that doesn't describe Christianity today in America, I don't know what does. And it really goes beyond just our Christian experience, but into life in general. If you are a person who doesn't understand what God's done for you in the past, what he's doing for you now, and what he's doing for you in the future, you will live in fear today, and you will be a person who can be controlled by governments, other people, uh, religious leaders. You can be controlled by them, but if you have faith in God and what he's doing for you today and what he's going to do in the future, you don't have to live in fear you can have confidence in the Lord. And so as we again come to this climactic event in the book of Revelation, I want us to, to make sure we, we know what's being talked about here, what is and what isn't included in this passage. So this phrase, heaven opened, we've actually seen it once before in Revelation. And so we'll compare what happened the other time that this phrase is used, Revelation 4.1, with what is uh, happening here in this verse. And just uh, spoiler alert, you know, people include the rapture in the second coming. So basically, the, they're going to say that, well, there's only one coming of the Lord. He's only coming again uh, when he comes to the earth. And so therefore, when it talks about people being caught up to heaven, well, we've got to be caught up and then come right back down with the Lord. And the rapture and the second coming, it's all the same thing. Uh, or there is no such thing. It already happened a long time ago. People can come up with all kinds of crazy interpretations of what's being said here. But one of the principles of Bible study and just... Uh, good reading comprehension is that an author has one purpose, one intent when he is writing something down. And nowhere is that more perfectly demonstrated than in the Bible. There is a single meaning to the text, and it is incumbent upon us to discover what that meaning is. And that's, that's what we do when we study Scripture. So there isn't a hidden rapture in here. Uh, so what is the rapture? 
and what is the second coming. That's, that's about as far as we're going to get today. Revelation 4.1 versus Revelation 19.11. Notice again, Revelation 19.11, it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Notice again, John saying, And I saw. John has made very clear to us that his that he is an eyewitness of these events. John the apostle John is a person who's very interested in eyewitness testimony. He that's why he uh, says he has many references at any rate in his gospel as well to himself personally seeing these events take place. The the various testimony of the apostles and people who were with Christ. That's what he records and he says this over and over again in uh in the gospel of john and in the book of revelation he kind of concludes his gospel john 21 24 by saying this is the disciple speaking of himself this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things and we know that this testimony is true john was an eyewitness to the life of Christ and the things that he wrote about. And the people who he's writing to, these various churches uh, in modern-day Turkey, uh, were familiar with who he was. They understood that he was an apostle, an apostle, someone who literally lived with Christ for three and a half years, saw him uh, rise again, a, a witness to the resurrection of Christ. That's what an apostle is, in spite of what we may hear today. According to the Bible, that's what an apostle is. Revelation 1.1, the book begins with John saying, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, God gave Christ, to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So God the Father gives the message to Christ. Christ communicates it to an angel. The angel communicates it to John. Verse 2, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So we have a a, an apostle, a person who lived with Jesus Christ throughout his entire ministry, saw him rise again. This is the one who is testifying to these uh, events that are being revealed to him. He wants us to understand he is an eyewitness to this. This isn't, uh, this isn't a pseudonymous book that uh, you know is just kind of being made up, that somebody is just taking John's name to give it authority and this kind of thing. Not at all. That is not at all what is taking place here. This is John the Apostle writing down the things that were revealed to him by the Lord through an angel. Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You know, the one who was imprisoned, 
on the island of Patmos. He's referencing literal facts that these people would have been familiar with about him to show that it's him writing it. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. He is the one uh, writing this and is uh, recording this for us. And as we come to the very climax of the book, he uses that phrase again. And I saw, John says, I saw heaven opened. And uh, when heaven is opened, God is seen. When heaven is opened from uh, from earth's perspective, we see God. That's the way it has been uh, every time we see this phrase in the scriptures. Ezekiel had a similar experience. Ezekiel 1.1, now it came about in the 13th year. Notice the details that Ezekiel gives, again, giving credibility to what he is writing uh, so that his audience would know this has, this has a stamp of approval. I, I am inserting uh, details here to make sure that you understand that this is happening right now. Like you may have seen uh, prisoners in Vietnam, they'll, uh, the old videos of them, they hold a newspaper when, the, when they're being videotaped or whatever to show that this video is being taken on February 5th, 1972, or whatever, whatever year it was, demonstrate this is this is valid this is a real thing ezekiel does the same thing now it came about in the 13th year on the fifth day of the fourth month while i was by the river kibar among the exiles the heavens were opened and i saw visions of god uh, matthew three sixteen, heaven was opened at the baptism of christ to uh, demonstrate what had just taken place matthew 3.16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. So the heavens opened when Christ was baptized and the Holy Spirit came down upon him as a dove. All the pictures and videos that are made up of this event show a dove coming down on the Lord. Uh, it's as a dove. It's the Holy Spirit coming down on him. That's God descending upon Christ. Acts 7.56, when Stephen was stoned, the first martyr uh, recorded in the scriptures, he said shortly before he was stoned, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That would have got the attention of the Pharisees uh, present and then we come to Revelation 4 and verse 1. The other instance in the book of Revelation where we see this phrase, if you'll remember, after the messages to the churches, after the things which are, as part of our outline, the things which are messages to literal churches that existed back then, Verse chapter 4, verse 1 opens with this. After these 
things. That's an indication that now we've moved on now to the things which will take place after these things. That's Revelation 119 is where we get our outline for the book. After the things which are, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he goes on to describe the one sitting on the throne, who is God himself. Uh, John, when heaven was opened, he was caught up to heaven and saw God and the risen Lord and that entire scene that we spent a lot of time uh, studying. So, and here in Revelation 19, 11, also the heavens are open and clearly we're going to see God again. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ on a white horse coming again to the earth to establish his kingdom. So yes, the heavens are open several times in the scriptures, but when we uh, consider this, you know, we go back to Ezekiel, that's so, I don't know, five to six hundred years before Christ, there's one. Uh, they opened at Christ when he was baptized, they opened when Stephen was martyred. Here, John, uh, Paul was caught up to heaven. This isn't something that happens every day. So uh, we ought to be be cautious when we hear stories or read stories about people who, oh, I, I died and I was caught up to heaven and let me write a book and tell you all about it. Uh, or Jesus spoke to me from heaven. I heard his voice and he told me to do this. Wow, you know, that's something that doesn't happen every day in the Bible, let alone now we, we it's hard to question people's experiences, but on the other hand, uh, these events in the scriptures are, are very real. We're talking about thousands of years of biblical history here. And so we just ought to be cautious. But one thing that is in common with all these events, God is seen every single time the heavens are open, we see God. And that's exactly what happened here. But there are some dramatic differences between what happened in Revelation 4 and what is happening here in Revelation 19. So this is just kind of a, a teaser, if you will, for the rest of the message. In Revelation 4 and verse 1, the heavens are opened. John hears a voice that says, come up here. John is taken up in Revelation 4.1. There's no coming down. He's taken up. In Revelation 19, believers come down. There's no going up mentioned in Revelation 19. There's only coming down. Christ comes down on a white horse. Believers come down. The armies which are in heaven, verse 14, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. They come down. There's no mention of any going up here at all. In Revelation 4, God is sitting on a throne. 
In Revelation 19, he's sitting on a horse. No mention of thrones in Revelation 19. In Revelation 4, the, the, the entirety of the scene, if you'll remember, is one of worship and revealing what is, what is happening in heaven as John is called, up, is called up to heaven, that incredible scene that we spent time studying. Revelation 19, very, very different. There's no worship. Uh, there is some revealing going on. There's the revealing of Christ here and what he's going to do. However, this event is primarily concerned with that last phrase in Revelation 19.11. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Those are the two kind of action verbs, if you will, there. Revelation 4, all about worshiping God in this incredible scene in heaven. Revelation 19, uh, no, something very different. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. This is why the, the, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is, this is the, the part of the message that is absolutely missing when we come to uh, people who are only concerned with uh, the red-letter Christians, if you will, only concerned with the words of Jesus and the Gospels, and then what should we be doing as Christians? Well, one thing, we ought to be uh, instruments of the Lord in in one respect, not the only respect, we don't need to be concerned with the fact that Christ is coming to judge and wage warfare, but that absolutely has to be part of the message. Otherwise, people are only getting a very, uh, a portion of the message, not the entire thing. And that affects our gospel eventually. That affects what we're telling people about how to be saved. That's the danger. If we are completely consumed with feeding the poor and uh, our entire ministry is directed towards uh, social justice and social actions, then what goes right along with that is, well, I'm saved if I'm engaging in social actions. If I'm making sure that everybody gets treated fairly, everybody has food and water, and that's all that we're concerned with, well, then obviously that's what I have to do to be saved. And that's a problem. That's works. That's uh, law keeping. Uh, that's a religious system. That's what everybody else thinks. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Christ, God, the eternal son, came to this earth, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, died for our sins and we have eternal life through faith in him and what he did for us and then therefore we go out and serve him we are saved to serve and we are motivated to serve him because he is a judge and he is going to judge you and he's going to judge me for how i have lived my life after putting my faith in him and we ought to be motivated uh, to not love this world. I, sometimes that's not a hard thing to do. Uh, but we ought not to be very attached to this world because Christ 
is coming again to wage warfare against this world. So don't put all your eggs in the basket of this world because it's going to be judged. War is going to be waged against it. And spoiler alert, Christ is going to win. And so in Revelation 4, we have a very, very different event taking place than what is spoken of in Revelation 19. And if you'll remember, when we were back in Revelation chapter 4, we made a comparison between what is happening to John with the rapture of the church that Paul spends a lot of his efforts teaching, or that we see most of what is written about the rapture is recorded by the apostle Paul. And we compared what happened to John with what Paul wrote about, and we saw, well, boy, there's a lot of similarities there. Uh, with John being caught up to heaven, seeing God, seeing Christ in his glory, being there with the 24 elders, if you'll remember, we spent a lot of time demonstrating that the 24 elders are actually representative of the church and believers in Christ. And they're there in heaven when John is caught up. And oh, by the way, all of this happens before the tribulation period is uh, kicked off in Revelation chapter 6, indicating that when we connect all those dots and make those comparisons, we see that John chapter 4 is a good picture of the rapture of the church. John is caught up to heaven, and then the tribulation period is revealed in uh, Revelation chapter 6. And so let's take some time this morning again to uh, look at this doctrine of the rapture of the church and see some of the distinctive aspects of the rapture of the church and compare those. Then we'll compare these distinctives of the rapture with what's happening in Revelation chapter 19 and see if there's any sort of... Uh, a correlation here. Are we talking about the same event or is this something very different? And so uh, I'm, uh, I realize I'm preaching to the choir here. <laughs> uh, however, just so it's, it's sure in our minds, if you're anything like me, when somebody confronts you with a question uh, concerning doctrine, uh, typically not like people from church asking me a question, but unbelievers, for example, or uh, skeptics, somebody who has a, a very different opinion from me about these kind of events, my first reaction is, oh no, I can't remember anything. And so we want to get beyond that. We want to have these kind of details uh, cemented in our mind so that when we're, we are confronted, with questions about them, you know, they're just, they're just kind of there and we can remember them. That's like Proverbs, one of our first step in living for the Lord, internalize God's word. That's what we'll engage in here. So it just becomes kind of part of who we are. And so 
I'll give you the answer ahead of time. You already know the answer. I think I've already said it. Revelation 19 is not the rapture of the church. There is no rapture described here in Revelation 19. I just want to give you the evidence for that. Revelation 19 is about the second coming, Christ coming to the earth to establish his kingdom upon the earth. The rapture, on the other hand, is a very different event, and it's described primarily in three different places in the Bible. These are kind of the three big ones, if you will. It's alluded to many, many, many times Uh, particularly throughout Paul's writings. But there are three basic places in the Bible that describe the event itself in detail. And they are John 14, 1 through 3. Jesus is the first person who revealed, uh, kind of gave the seed of this new uh, teaching or a, a revelation of this event that people didn't know about before. Biblical term for that is a mystery, a revealing of a previously unknown doctrine. Jesus is the one who gave that to us in seed form in John chapter 14. He did that in the upper room discourse, it's called. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer referred to the, the upper room discourse as, as the seed plot for all of, of Christian doctrine that Paul and the other writers of the New Testament expanded upon. Jesus revealed all of these things to us. The rapture, in fact, John 14, 1. It's one of the first things Jesus talked about, in fact, when it comes to the Christian life. Don't worry. I'm coming again for you. I can come again at any time. In fact, when I leave here, I'm going for the express purpose of constructing a place for you. So don't worry. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit as a believer. So trust in me. Trust in the Holy Spirit who indwells you. All of these kinds of things Jesus said to his apostles in John 14, beginning with the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Uh, Paul very clearly describes an event that is unlike any that has ever taken place in the history of the world. He taught about that same event in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. So this isn't going to be an exhaustive study of these passages, but I will read them. John 14, Jesus says, verse 1, notice the language very closely, and then we'll just make some general observations about what is being said. Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. John 14 does not in any way, shape, or form fit with Revelation 19. Revelation 19, Christ riding on a horse, coming again to the earth, slaying his enemies. John 14, don't worry, 
believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. In fact, when I leave this earth, I'm going back there to prepare one for you, believers. And if I go, I will come again and catch you up and take you back to that place that that I am preparing for you. No going up in Revelation 19, only coming down. So notice that it is a comfort. Do not let your heart be troubled. It is for believers. Believe in God. Believe also in me, Jesus said. It is heavenly. This is exclusively heavenly uh, directed. There's no mention of the earth here other than you're going to leave this earth. I'm going to come again and take you off this earth back to the Father's house. That's only one. The Father's house is only one thing. That's where the Father dwells. That's in heaven. That's where he is now. That's where Christ is now. He goes on later in this passage to say, you know where I'm going. I'm going to leave this earth. I'm going to heaven. That's where the Father's house is. That's where he's preparing the place. That's where he's going to come and take us back to that place. He is coming to get believers in that place passage verse 3 if i go and prepare a place for you i will come again and receive you to myself first thessalonians 4:13 through 18 paul writing to the thessalonians very different context than john 14 but what we're going to see is it's a very similar message First Thessalonians 4.13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, brothers, believers, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. First off, notice the similarities between John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4. It is a comfort. Don't let your heart be troubled. Comfort one another with these words. It is for believers in the dispensation of the church uh, only. This is an exclusive event for believers in the church age. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So the dead in Christ, those who have died, having put their faith in Christ will rise first. Then we who are, remain, who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. The Lord comes in the air catches believers up to him. And so we will always be with the Lord. This fits very nicely with what Jesus spoke about in John 14. It is an imminent 
event. Paul expected it in his lifetime. It could happen at any time. There's no sign that must precede this event. It is imminent. That's why he says, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, Paul expected to be alive. As a believer in Christ, you ought to expect to be alive because it could happen at any time. There's no signs mentioned. Paul doesn't say, oh, by the way, yeah, there's going to be seven years of tribulation first. You watch out for the Antichrist. Uh, watch out for that fifth seal judgment. That's going to be a bad one for you because uh, that's when Christians are going to be killed because of not taking the... Oh, I forgot to mention that mark of the beast too. Yeah, you got to watch out for that one. Boy, there's a lot of things to watch. He doesn't mention any of those things. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. It could happen at any time. Notice also it is a resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise first. No mention of a resurrection in Revelation 19. We'll get to resurrections later, but there isn't one in Revelation 19. This is a resurrection. The rapture is a resurrection. It is the gifting of a glorified body to those who are in Christ, believers in the dispensation of the church. That's you. That's me. That's every person who has died having had their faith in Christ since Acts chapter 2 until this event takes place. All of those people will instantaneously be resurrected or caught up and changed in a moment. Speaking, oh, here's the other one, catching up. That's uh, the, the Greek word harpazo that you are familiar with. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Also notice there's no mention of meeting the Lord in the air and then coming down to the earth. Nope meeting the Lord in the air, going back to the Father's house, the place that he's preparing for us. One of the critiques of the rapture doctrine is, uh, oh, the word rapture isn't even in the Bible. Partially true. Harpazo is the Greek term translated as caught up in that phrase or catching up. The Latin term for harpazo is rapturo, and that is where we get our uh, English term for rapture. And so here's a chart that we've seen before. Uh, the rapture in John 14, 1 through 4, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, these concepts are all appear in both of them. They are a comfort. We're not to grieve about uh, our state in this world or the state of those who have died before us who are in the Lord. Uh, this is for believers is mentioned. God is, is mentioned in Christ. Jesus and God is also mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's based on the word of the Lord. Jesus said in the upper room, if it were not so, I would have told you. This is, this is the, the word of the Savior Paul calls it the word of the Lord. Uh, he's going to come again in John 14. 
Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 or 5 mentions the coming of the Lord, uh, that we are being taken to meet the Lord. Uh, We are uh, meeting the Lord. We're being taken, Jesus says, to myself. He's coming to receive you and that we can be where he is. That is uh, mentioned in both passages as well. So uh, the conclusion being that John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4 are very much talking about the same event. Which brings us to our third passage, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58, very quickly, it says, uh, Paul, again, to the Corinthians, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, a previously unrevealed truth, that term means. The second coming, as I hope you are familiar with by now, is something that has been prophesied about throughout the Old Testament. That's God, the second person of the Trinity, coming to the earth and establishing life as it is should be, is not something that is unrevealed. In fact, it's throughout the Old Testament. Paul is telling us something else here. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Notice the the language, including himself in there. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Uh, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. It's said that those who uh, are looking forward to the rapture and are quote-unquote consumed by the rapture uh, don't do anything good on the earth. Well, I guess that could be true, but that's because you're not getting the whole message. That's kind of, uh, we're focused too much on the prophecy and not understanding the purpose of the prophecy is to motivate you to live for the Lord today. Therefore, verse 58, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because he can come again for you at any moment in the twinkling of an eye, you will be changed forever and caught up to be with him forever. So this too, for believers, it's a mystery. It's a resurrection. It's imminent. All the same characteristics of uh, what John reveals Jesus's words and Paul says to the Thessalonians, there's a change, it's a resurrection, it's imminent, it's not preceded by signs like, oh, Revelation 19, we've just spent the last 
52 weeks, almost literally, <laughs> studying the signs that lead to Revelation 19. No signs here. It can happen at any moment. It is, in fact, here revealed in 1 Corinthians 15. This is a necessity. This must happen for us to be able to live with God forever. He's giving believers the victory, and it is absolutely the motivation for the Christian life, and that's why it cannot, should not be separated from the message of Christ, the testimony of Christ. Prophecy is necessary part of it. So what is the rapture? I kind of came up with this on my own, making a conglomeration of all these various aspects. The rapture is a mysterious, motivating, imminent event wherein believers in the church will be resurrected or changed instantaneously and caught up to meet Christ in the air and taken back to heaven. That's the rapture when we combine all the aspects of these three passages. That's what the rapture is. And this is uh, the motivation for the Christian life, which brings me to this article that I just happened to come across this past week. Christianity.com. Is it okay for Christians to have rapture anxiety? I don't know if you've ever heard of rapture anxiety. I never had, but here we go. Religious trauma has been a perennial topic of discussion in deconstruction. This is written by Dale Chamberlain. Uh, I'm not sure who exactly his credentials are or whatever, but it was published, so it must be good. Religious trauma has been a perennial topic of discussion in deconstruction in evangelical communities. That should have gotten my attention right from the beginning, that phrase deconstruction. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but people deconstructing their faith. Apparently, they have a problem with the rapture. What do you know? Uh, but more recently, a very specific source of such trauma known as rapture anxiety has begun to make headlines. Uh, and he goes on to sort of accurately describe what the rapture is, but not completely. Uh, it was popularized by the Left Behind books uh, that's now a movie, uh, again, a movie. Uh, for many Christians who grew up in evangelical homes, rapture theology had such a heavy emphasis on their spiritual upbringing during their formative years that it has overshadowed their conception of the Christian life so much that it has become a source of anxiety. So people have anxiety that they'll be left behind. Uh, he says that, they, that uh, they think that they haven't been faithful enough and so when the rapture happens, they're going to get left behind and the, they wake up from a nap and everybody's gone in their house. They think, oh no, the rapture's happened. I haven't been faithful enough. Well, that's a problem with the instruction. And you don't have to be faithful enough. You have to have faith in Christ and then you will be raptured. That is, that is a, a guarantee. And I won't, I won't, you can look it up if you want to read the whole thing. Is it okay for Christians to have rapture anxiety? And basically the, the conclusion is no. And if you have rapture anxiety, according to this guy, you just jettison it. Just don't believe in it. Uh, it's okay. Lots of Christians don't. It's okay. Everybody's doing it. Just, just don't think about it anymore. Don't, uh, just don't believe that portion of uh, the scripture. And then your anxiety will go away. Well, that's sort of a problem. 
not even sort of. That's a big problem because this the rapture doctrine, it, as we've seen, is motivating for us to live the Christian life. If we have an expectation that Christ can come again for us at any moment, how ought we to be living? So that's what the rapture is. What is the second coming? That's described for us here in Revelation 19. So here comes our very fast overview (laughs) of this passage. Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Did we hear anything about judgment in waging war in John 14, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15? No, there's no war waging going on. Something very different is about to be described here in Revelation 19. Christ is coming to judge and wage war. He's not coming to rescue believers from this from the uh, uh, imperil that is about to come upon the earth, as he says in Revelation 3.10. Something very different. He's coming to judge and to wage war. No mention of that in any of our uh, rapture passages. That, notice also there is a detailed description of Christ and his appearance. Verses 12 through 13, his eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. There's no description of Christ in any of the rapture passages. I found that Uh, to be kind of fascinating. Uh, The description of Christ is what we already have. Uh, He's the one, the one who's coming for us in the rapture is the one who's depicted in the gospels. The one who who loves us and died for us. Uh, This, I wouldn't say version of Jesus, but when Jesus comes again at the second coming, He's coming for a very, very different purpose. uh, And that is why this description is given of him. Here is same person, same person who came and lived on the earth and will come again in the clouds to catch us up to, to go back to heaven with him is the exact same person as this one who is coming, but he's fulfilling a very different purpose when he comes again the second time. Hence, this uh, rather frightening uh, description of his appearance. This is going to get the attention of the world. Notice that the armies of heaven come with Christ. Verse 14, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Paul sort of alludes to this in the rapture passage. Verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. People are going to be coming again with the Lord when he comes to the earth. That's what's described here in Revelation 19, 14. People coming with him. Paul then goes on to say, well, how are we going to be qualified 
to come back again with him. He's going to catch us up, change us, clothe us in these white garments, and then we will be qualified to come again with him as part of the armies which are in heaven described in 1914. This is the pouring out of God's wrath upon the earth. No mention of wrath in John 14, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. No mention of wrath. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Very, very different than our rapture passages. In fact, he goes on to say that this passage describes the destruction of the enemies of God. And on his robe, verse 16, and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and Great. The only mention of flesh in the rapture passages is an allusion to the fact that God is going to change our flesh into an immortal one, in a, into an immortal body wherewith we can live with God for eternity. Very, very different mentioning of flesh here in Revelation 19. It's going to be consumed by the birds of the air because these people are going to be Killed. So Revelation uh, 19 is very, very different than 1 John or John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4. Revelation 19, 11 is all about unbelievers. The only humans mentioned are unbelievers. The only humans mentioned in these passages are believers. The dead are resurrected in 1 Thessalonians 4 and John 14. The living are killed. Exactly the opposite in Revelation 19. No mention of living people coming back to life, only people being killed. Of course, John 14, 1 Thessalonians 4, believers are caught up. Revelation 19, believers descend with the Lord First uh, Thessalonians 4, John 14, the word gives life. All this is happening. The rapture is happening by the word of the Lord. In Revelation 19, he takes life with his word. That's why it says that uh, in verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword wherewith he slays everyone. He, essentially, he is taking life by his spoken word, the same way that he created the world and everything that is in it with his spoken word, he's going to take life when he comes again with his word. And of course, this is eternal life. First Thessalonians 4 and John 14 is about eternal life with the Lord. Revelation 19 is really about eternal separation from the Lord. These passages, in fact, could hardly be any more the opposite. 
talking about two completely separate events. And here's another slide, if it'll stay up there long enough for you to to see it or to take a picture of it. Uh, The rapture happens in the air. The second coming happens on the earth. It is a delivery for the righteous. We are caught up to be with the Lord forever. It's judgment for the wicked and other passages. The second coming, again, it's not only described here. In Revelation, it's described throughout the Old Testament and many places in the New Testament. In fact, uh, Matthew 24 and 25 exclusively about the second coming, the tribulation events, the signs that lead up to the second coming and the second coming itself. That's what the Olivet Discourse is about. Uh, The rapture is a resurrection to life. The second coming is death. For the wicked, again, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9, not only here in Revelation, it's throughout. He's coming to rescue us from the tribulation that is to come, the wrath that is to come. Revelation 3.10 is another one we could add to this list besides Romans 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. He's coming to rule in Revelation 19, we will see. Uh, as well as Psalm 2, uh, very clearly the Lord is coming again to rule over this earth. He's coming to rescue in the rapture. This The rapture is an imminent event, as I mentioned, no signs mentioned in any of these passages. Paul expected it in his, in his life. We ought to expect it in our lives. The second coming is absolutely, unequivocally, completely preceded by signs. We've just, we've been spending the last 60 weeks studying the signs that lead to this event, the second coming. The entire purpose of the Olivet Discourse is to describe the signs that happen before the second coming. And the rapture finally is a comfort for us. That's the whole purpose of Jesus and Paul revealing this to us is to comfort us about our present circumstances because of what the Lord is going to do us. Uh, The second coming is really more of a warning type of passage. uh, the, the The rapture doctrine, it could be a warning if you want to take it that way, uh, that's not a bad way to take it. Yeah, you, if you're living uh, a life separated from fellowship in the Lord, yeah, you ought to be uh, concerned with the fact that he could come again at any moment to catch you up because when he does, we're going to stand in judgment before him. The second coming is absolutely a warning passage to unbelievers. He is going to come and slay you with the word of his mouth, if you haven't put your trust in Christ when this event happens. And so we ought to be uh, prepared for that by putting our trust in him. So heaven is opened here in Revelation 19.11, and it is describing in this passage exclusively the second coming, as hopefully has been made clear, uh, the rapture of the church is nowhere in view in Revelation 19. And so we ought to be uh, thankful for that. It's not a whole lot in Revelation 19 that, uh, that is encouraging to us, unless 
we understand that we are the ones who are with him, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following him on white horses. And the only way we can do that, have that assurance is by putting our trust in him today. And let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Revelation. I thank you for the doctrine of the rapture. I thank you that you comfort us with your words and that we do not need to live in fear in this world in which we are living. We do not need to live in fear of uh, political powers that be. We don't need to live in fear of uh, anyone or anything because you are our God, you are our Savior, and you are coming again for us to catch us up, to take us to be with you for eternity. And may we, Lord, be found faithful in the meantime, uh, looking forward to that day, looking forward to the great appearing of you to catch us up to be with you. And I just pray that that would motivate us and make us zealous for good deeds in this uh, short remaining time that we have. We pray for your will to be done in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.